<laughs> one, two, three. One, two, three. It's the JT and Looney podcast. Episode 89. Powered by our friends at Believe. That's the number one betting place online. Well, at least in my mind it is. You know why? Because they're a sponsor of the JT and Looney podcast, so we love them. The month of June is heating up with a ton of exciting sports action. Wow, it's great to have our stadiums full to watch baseball games, our arenas full to watch the NBA playoffs, and you got the NHL uh, Stanley Cup playoff, no S, also going on. And, oh, man, lots of great stuff to bet on, too, at betonline.ag. you got to go there. they got a lot of really cool prop bets, too. I love the prop bets. BetOnline has all the latest odds. If you go to the website, the latest news and information for all your online sports betting needs. We love Bet online. And if you're a friend of the JT and Looney podcast, you'll get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. If you're an enemy of the JT and Looney podcast, you'll get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. They're very open, those people at Bet Online. So before the next tip off, face off, or pitch, head on over to Bet Online and start playing today. Bet Online. Your online sportsbook experts. Check, check, one, two, three. One, two, three. Still can't hear you. Okay. Still can't hear you. Because uh, there's only. And then on my. Um, oh, I don't have my headset plugged in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the cord. The cord. This cord. <laughs> Jeez. Blaming it. Look at me blaming everyone again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's plug this cord into the computer and hopefully it solved the problem. <laughs> How's that? How about now when I don't hear you and I'm plugged in? Okay, I, you should be okay. I can, you sound good now to me. Can you hear me? One, two, three. You can hear me. Yeah. You sound much better, too, coming out of that uh, headset. Check, check. How about now? Yeah, you sound great. Yes. Oh, now I got it. Now I just hit this button here. <laughs> So that's it. Uh, my, my levels are good. Yeah, yeah, it sounds good in that Roadcaster headset. Yeah, that's it, the Roadcaster. Um, <laughs> uh, my mother-in-law says hello. She just left. Oh, great! I think a, a Ronnie Millsap. Every time you mention her name, I gotta find the cover to my mic. Which is a great, a great story about how she and I had this great conversation about Ronnie Millsap, and so she sent me. Um, you know, because she always sent a Christmas card. She sent me a CD back in the CD days that she made of Ronnie Millsap's great songs. Right. And I told Julie about it, and Julie said to your mother, leave Looney alone. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Um, yeah, where'd you go now? Oh, I can't hear you because you dropped, took your headset off. I'm going to try to do it without this mic cover over my mic, and you're saying it sounds okay. Yeah, it sounds fine. 
Oh, the mic covers are overrated. You know, yeah, the mic cover is, uh, I mean, I, so, I suppose a sound guy somewhere in the world would argue with me over that, but I don't, I, I've uh, never been a big fan of those mic, right. pro, mic prophylactics. Oh, I push. I pushed record. I might, uh, if if you don't mind, I might use the funny part where you said, "Oh, I don't have my headset plugged in." That's funny. Yeah, that's good. That uh, was funny. That whole setup was because uh, it was all very us, and you know that's what they want different in podcasts. I want myself. Um, you've been working with a personal trainer. Can we talk about that on the yeah, JT? We can talk maybe? about that. I, I remember I was the only radio host. I was the first radio host to ever do p90x twice and it was yes. yeah, oh my god did it yes that was a great promotion uh we had to do that for radio and i was the guinea pig p90x and i did that and it worked good and we're just working out a little bit more out here because it's 115 degrees yeah you have to find it's something to do inside degrees, oh so. god and it, one of the things i'm realizing living in vegas in the summer is you should never be here in the summer. If you, have a job, <laughs> if you have a job where you don't have to be here, you should leave. Right. Or you should take all your vacation in July. And now it's June. We got to 115 in June, which is a really bad sign. Lake Mead off the Colorado River and our we have a bathtub ring, they call it, where our water has gone down to like prehistoric levels from where the dinosaurs used to roam. Right. And this lake was full and flowing over the top and now it's down and you can see the rings around the mountains. And every year I say the same thing to my wife. Why are we here? And it's always usually because the kids are in sports or in school. Right. But today, as we record the podcast, my youngest turns 18 today, June 18th. He's 18 years old today. Wow. And nice. Getting, uh, we're going to be two months away from empty nesting where they will both be in college, one at Arizona State University, the young one, and then a junior at Oklahoma, which he's doing so good. And uh, my wife and I are going to figure out what to do when the kids aren't around, which will be very interesting. Yeah, my brother, who has a daughter younger than your boys and who's older than me, my older brother, mm -hmm. who's older than us, has a daughter younger than your boys. She's going to be in ninth grade, my niece. And when she graduates high school, uh, they're leaving Elmira. <laughs> so when she goes to visit her parents, wherever it is, it's not going to be there because it's not a bad, you know, there's plenty of cities in the world that aren't a bad place to raise kids or aren't a bad place to be in certain months of the year, but other months of the year, not. I mean, we grew up in the Northeast and upstate New York, where at some point people, if they had the means would go to Florida for the winter snowbirds. I think you called them, right? They yep. call them in Florida. And which completely makes sense. And since you can do your show now from anywhere, I'm working. Uh, I've been anchoring the news all week at KABC from the house. KABC, Los Angeles, Orange County, and KLOS HD2, Los Angeles. Would you rather work nine to five or nine to two? Wired Magazine points to research that indicates a five-hour workday increases productivity and leads to better morale. Experts go on to say during an eight-hour workday, workers are really only productive for five hours anyway. They say the eight-hour workday was created arbitrarily, and the pandemic has led a lot of companies to reconsider their work model. Sounds good to me. Tom Looney, KABC News. And it's so funny. I'll get, it, there are times 
At the end of the newscast, we do the weather. It's so much fun doing the weather, although in L.A. it's easy. But you give three weather, you give a temperature from three different places. And sometimes I'll give the temperature outside our KABC studios in Culver City. And then I'll say, and it's 92 outside my house in Highland Park. <laughs> Just because that's where I am. I kind of want to be, uh, I kind of want to own it. KABC SoCal weather, excessive heat warning in effect until Saturday. It was 122 in Palm Springs today. Daytime highs, 80s at the beaches, 90s inland, triple digits in the valley. 66 outside our luxurious KABC studios in Culver City. 70 outside my house in Highland Park. 70 in Sherman Oaks where it rained today. And that's what's really cool about what we do and the technology that's changed is you can go anywhere and do it where you're thinking well i I mean i'm going to be in vegas here for a while but it's tough to take this technology that we have uh especially with the the show i do on satellite and and take it and move it you need the right wi-fi you have to have it dialed in right but you know the big thing since covid and this podcast really was launched before COVID and been dominated by COVID as the topic is that I remain working from home and it's something now I'm very, very comfortable with. Oh, you've gotten comfortable with it. You didn't used to be comfortable. I wasn't comfortable with it in the beginning. And my mother-in-law's in town here for two weeks. So I'm doing the day show from back in the studio with Bobby, who's been with me and it's nice to go in a studio. Right. And then at night, you know, doing the national show from, from my guest bedroom that I have all jacked up with TVs and wires and all that. It's just nice when you go to a break to open up the door and there's your dog and there's your wife and there's your son yeah. and your mother-in-law and you could talk for four or five minutes. The clock goes off in my head. I have four <laughs> minutes because for whatever reason I work on satellite and we can't have breaks longer than four minutes. Right. I feel like I'm running a marathon every night. We'll get to that later. And it's just nice. It's very comfortable. And the best part is when the show's over and I log out, I don't have to get in a car and drive and get on a freeway. Not that I had a big commute. You know, I've always lived. No, no, you didn't. But I, my argument has been that it, and in some ways, especially not to, you know, you and I always gave 110% and, and that was, that's the way we do it. Our brand is our name and our personality is our brand. So you don't mail any segments in. you don't mail anything in when you got a live microphone in front of you. But I would say that, not having to drive into the station you can right up to the last second you're not you have nothing else in your head like wow i gotta get on the freeway or i can't wait to get in the car no you don't have any of that i think in a lot of ways people do a better job if they are home and you know mature people think oh this is a good gig i'm going to give 110 percent right up until the clock strikes five or whatever because i have i could just turn this button off and walk into the other room it's a very interesting topic that should be basically the base of this podcast is working from home or not i don't believe that you can be productive working from home yeah you've said that yeah this industry it works it's just a microphone it's just a microphone you're saying it doesn't work where well in a lot of businesses a lot of my nieces and nephews and young people now coming off of covid are working from home and I can't wrap my head around the fact that they're working from home and they could if they want be in their shorts and their pajamas and they could be doing and breaking whenever they want. They have to get their work done. What I've always believed and no one will change my mind on this. So please don't try to. I don't believe <laughs> that a 22 year old kid who gets off the train in Manhattan wearing a suit and tie with a briefcase 
gets to a skyscraper, gets in the elevator, pops off the elevator on the 38th floor, and then there's a sea of humanity and people working and levels of management. I don't think you can be productive sitting at home in shorts and a tank top doing that same job. I believe in structure. I believe in work ethic. I believe in climbing the corporate ladder, which means people see you work. They know what time you get to work. They see your production. They see your social skills. I think it's going to be a, a debatable topic for decades to come. Yeah, it is. And the what you hit me in the balls with there was you mentioned someone getting out of college who's 22, whether or not they get out of college. It's a whole other subject, too, for the future. How often college is great, but we have we waste a lot of money on it. It's costing too much. And there are also uh, there's majors that shouldn't be different topic. But you mentioned in your 20s. Yeah, uh, you needed to keep your eye on me in my 20s. When I was, after I graduated college and I moved to L.A., I worked at the Sidewalk Cafe in Venice Beach. I lived on the beach, managed an apartment building on the beach, so I was rich. The reason why I was rich, because if you don't have to pay rent in L.A., you're rich. Right? <laughs> no, if you make a minimum wage, you're rich. So I, and I lived across the street from the Sidewalk Cafe, right on the beach in Venice. I was late for work every day. You know, my coworkers would come and ring the doorbell and say, this is ridiculous. I had to walk 16 feet <laughs> to work, but I was in my 20s. And so you're right. You have to prove. And that's where I learned that reputation and being a, a fun guy and a good guy isn't, well, isn't if you're a fun guy and a good guy and a loving person as I am, that's not good enough. You still have to show up for work on time and do your job. I'm not going to get you through it. Well, again, my side of the story was really unique. 21 years old. I come out of college. I don't know what I'm going to do. Geneseo State University and my buddy Rick Burke says, hey, you want to be a stockbroker? I said, sure. He goes, you know, I'm, he goes, I'm making $10,000 a month. And I said, what? He goes, yeah, I'm making $10,000 a month. Here's the deal. Come on in and now cue the movie Boiler Room. Everybody go rent it, go stream it. Very easy, Boiler Room. That movie was about the exact group of guys I worked with at that time. And it's pretty much told right to the point, And it's very accurate. So I had to pass the Series 7. I had to take a test over the summer and I failed it the first time and I took it again and I passed it. What is, is a series seven, a brain yeah, exam to be a, stock, to be a stock broker, You have to have a, you have to have a license, even okay. though I got into the side of stock brokering where you felt like you were robbing a bank every right. day, but you needed a license. <laughs> so when I started, I started during the first crash in October of 87, I was wow. in an office with a suit on making no money training as the stock market was crashing literally October saw it all in front of me. And then I was given a yellow pages with a suit on and a tie and had to look the part and sat in a corner with a phone and had to open up a yellow pages and start prospecting. Wow. I, you couldn't do that from home today because everybody would quit in 10 seconds, right. let alone 10 minutes. Ah, but yes. when you had managers screaming over your head and counting your calls and counting your leads and doing that, it instilled such an insane work ethic because my dad is, you know, a mentor of me in a lot of ways and especially business. And he was always a no nonsense work guy, work hard. But getting thrown into this, the only reason I found really good early success is because I loved the room. The room in the movie Wolf of Wall Street and in Boiler Room is really what the movie is. You look around the room and it's just a sea of, you know, 200 guys, not not 20, 
200 right. guys screaming into the phone trying to open up accounts. And I said, man, this is for me. I love this. It's all about ego. Hey, I made more calls than you. I made I opened up more accounts than you. So it was like going to a sporting event every day at the Coliseum. Wow. And then the next thing you know, it's October by February of 1988. I got a Porsche. I'm making fifteen thousand dollars a month. Wow. I'm getting in my Porsche and going on appointments in Boston and Connecticut and trying to open up accounts. And I'm coming back into this boiler room the movie boiler room and people are making me stand on my desk and they're giving me a round of applause for opening up X amount and making X amount of money. That's how my life started. It never would have worked from home. Now, if you were making when you were very, very young, uh, is it good for a 22 year old to be making $15,000 a month? Did that you did that turn you right? Did you, immediately? Did you realize, Oh my God, I'm wasting too much money on uh, getting drunk. I'm not going to spend one more dime on alcohol. Is that what, is that what went through your mind when you were 22 and had all that money? <laughs> Very interesting. You, you bring this up. Because <laughs> there's two parts to that story. When you make a lot of money early and I wish you could have seen my life back then because we were working too much. So we were working all the time in order right. to make that type of money. You had to work. So we were, getting, we were getting into work at eight in the morning and we were done at seven at night or six. At oh, night. shit. But then what was happening? We were making so much money and the movie depicted a great in the boiler room and even Wolf of Wall Street that we would go right out with our suits on from work and we would party. Yeah, that's what you do in your 20s. You we party with people you work with and yeah. we would party hard till midnight, one in the morning go home and get five hours sleep and come back and do it again. And that's why I got out of that industry because by the time I was 25, 26, I felt like I was doing it. And I put this in my book, the handoff, the chapter, my, my dad read that chapter and I think had to walk around the block, <laughs> but it was, there was truth to that. I was so burnt out. I was working so hard and the partying was just drinking and all that I didn't partake in right. the, but the partying, was pretty hard that by the time I was 26, 27, I needed to get out of the business because I was so beaten down by that life cycle that I was in and I enjoyed it. And I learned more about salesmanship and communication in those five years early. And then I moved out to San Diego and transferred and became a broker out there. Longer story short, but those five years from 21 to 26, taught me my whole life on how well, to on how to sell on how to be a salesman and not only that when you've got a satellite radio show and hours to fill and people are watching games rather than listening to your show so they're not all lined up on hold you got a great uh, you have a great blueprint for having to talk on the fly if you can open up a yellow pages call people up and initiate conversations from the yellow pages, then you can do it from the sports page. It's a lot easier to do it from the sports page than the yellow pages. What a great blueprint for you. Yeah, it was really good yeah. because it taught me the phone. As, as I said, the phone has had a massive impact of my life, the telephone. Yeah. And all of it is not good because, like most people, I spend too much time on it. Right. So yep. Fortunately, my friends give me a lot of credit because I'm the guy who keeps everyone in touch, and I like to call people and call there's people i yep. call every day it's just yep. that habit and i like that but yeah when we did the show that was it was like clockwork and uh but i know that you have people you don't do shows with that you call like clockwork too yeah, I like I a tons like, of them i like to yeah. talk to people i like to talk to people and i learned my, my, my the arc of my life started on the phone 
in the, you know, the boiler room started that way. And now last night when I did the show, it's the final hour of the show. And we're, we're talking about Giannis uh, beating the nets and yeah. going to game seven. And all I'm caring about is generating phone calls. Like the content is set. I got right. all that. I have all that down to a T, but now we're trying to build the topic with 40 minutes left in the show. You want to be the boiler room guy, the frat president, get people in on the party. Yeah. I want to get people yeah. in on the show and the irony of this all, because I, I'm really happy with the way the radio shows are going is I'm working harder than ever, ever to generate phone calls. Right. And I've taken more phone calls than anyone in the history of radio other than mad dog Russo in Rome. Cause we've always been caller intensive. I, right. I've never shot away from that, but now we're still doing sports radio and COVID still COVID. There's, there's no one going to games. There's not as many as you think. Right. There are some people starting to go, but most people are hesitant. So they're not in their car. They're not at the game. They're not experiencing the game. So it takes as much work as ever, as ever to get people to listen, interact, respond. And I'm sitting here going, geez, I'm 55 years old at the pinnacle of my career and I'm still busting my balls every night to get someone to come out of the break at nine 20, you know, a couple of people on hold that are screened properly who might right. not now the good ones are on and get them to interact. Just like I wanted to open up accounts at 21, like the Wolf of wall street. At the beginning of this conversation, most likely I will drop in a story I did yesterday on KABC in Los Angeles about working nine to five because it fits in so much with this conversation. And when you worked nine to five, you know, it's, it's an arbitrary, the eight hour workday was created arbitrarily and the pandemic has led to a lot of companies to reconsider work models, which, you know, circling back to the beginning of this conversation, Wired Magazine points to research that indicates a five hour workday increases productivity and leads to better morale experts uh, within this study went on to say and during an eight hour workday workers really only are productive five hours anyway so what would you think about a, a work day in the boiler room or any other similar type of business there is no similar type of business but getting rid of the arbitrary nine to five and doing nine to two well, I'm learning a lot about that with my nieces and nephews and young people that are working yeah. again. And my son's doing an internship with a sports agent this summer. Great. And it's all about productivity. How productive are you? How hard are you working? And to the credit of the young kids coming out of college now or just getting into the workforce, they're much smarter when it comes to technology than we ever were because we didn't right, have right. the technology. We didn't have no. laptops and we didn't have cell phones that we could talk into and dictate texts and all this and access to information. We have the Dewey decimal system. Yeah. We could just talk into Google and get every answer. Yes. But I'm just a big believer. I'm fascinated by this topic over COVID. Uh, one of my fraternity brothers who's also a mentor and one of my great friends, my buddy, Mike in New York, he owns a big, big company in Manhattan that he's a big, big furniture guy, corporate, corporate furniture. And he knows the commercial real estate market as good as anybody you'll ever know one of the sharpest greatest guys i've ever met and we, we had a deep conversation about when are people going to come back into manhattan because there's all this empty workspace yeah remember something called the boardroom yeah you don't need a boardroom ever again imagine people going into a boardroom with a mask even though we're taking masks off you don't put people yeah. into a room anymore and now you have zoom and all of this and all of that real estate 
needs to be filled again or be converted into something else. Yeah. And it's a really fascinating topic because a lot of people are not going to go back into these workplaces and these giant office towers for years. Not, yeah. not like, hey, we're going to start next February. We're all coming back to work. Many of those companies went out of business. They're not even in business anymore. So the, the real estate company, Tom, hasn't even begun releasing that to another company. And the new company that could lease it is like, what are you nuts? I don't need to lease that oh, 30,000 yeah. square feet with all that furniture there. It's fascinating. Yeah. All these buildings end up looking like Scientology buildings where people are just owning the real estate and there's nothing going on inside. And you're, there's so many different industries. For example, the acting industry, as you know, which I've dabbled in yes, my entire good. life. Oh, now everyone is so good. Or if you're not, if you're older, you better get good. I've got my ring light and my cameras, and I'm really always been staying good with technology. And my brother, who's older than me, is a gadget nut and has every new gadget there is. Yes. And so I've I, so we grew up in a gadget. My mother hated gadgets. She didn't know where we came from. <laughs> uh, but I now the, there's a whole industry casting movies, casting commercials and television shows where, you know, industrious people do it for these companies. And they have a they rent, you know, 2000 square feet on Ventura Boulevard and actors wait in the lobby. And you have these rooms where the actors go in and audition. Not anymore. And I don't know if it's coming back. They will uh, they will decide who they want to have audition. And then the people are doing it from home and expected to have the right lighting and uh, expected to have the right cameras and the right stuff. So now the onus is on the actor to have the camera, the lighting, the technology and the ability to film oneself with the uh, with the lines at home, have somebody off camera feeding you lines and do it into the camera and that whole industry of the middleman of the casting director is uh, is in peril as is the person who owns the retail space in Manhattan right now oh the person who owns the retail space in the mall not that oh. there's a lot of malls left yeah and they're going to that's what's going to change i think also over the course of the decades it's going to fascinate us cuz remember i was always mallophobic but now a lot of those giant malls the Roosevelt Mall and Garden City is going to end up being apartments. And there will be a Baskin Robbins and a Starbucks and the other 342 spaces that used to be stores are going to be apartments. It's fascinating. I hope yeah. more people are able to get back to work. And again, it's not about guys in their 40s, 50s, people close to retirement. We've been there. We've done that. It's like my nephew and right. my nieces who I want them to experience this. I want my son when he graduates in college in two years to get a job, to go into a building, to make friends. Yeah. Get yeah. Lunch today. We got an hour. Let's go get lunch, meet people because that's such an important part. It of is social interaction where the generation behind us. Now they're swiping, right, swiping left. They're texting. They're not having conversations. And they're also missing the prom because of the, uh, just, just in a micro sense, in terms of the, the pandemic, they, they didn't have proms two years of kids. You know, the, like, wasn't your son a junior and a senior when this all was going down? My son who turns 18 today and is, you know, love the kid more than ever. He is special. But when I want to ride him for sleeping till four o'clock in the afternoon, my wife reminds me that, you know, he lost 11th and 12th grade. Yeah. And he didn't lose it completely. He's got a lot of good friends and they figured it out and he's going to college, but 
he went through something in, at the age of 17. Now he's 18 that I'll never understand. Well, yeah. I watched it, but I never got a grip of what it was like for him to be in his room all day, not go to high school, do high school from home, have to see his friends on the weekend, no prom, all of that. And everybody's gone through this. Everybody's gone through something similar. But it's just a shame, and hopefully we all come out of it better people. Well, uh, I don't know that everybody went through. Shot to have more fun. Yeah, I don't know that everyone went through something similar than missing their junior and senior year yeah, in high school. Yeah. That's very. Uh, that's that's just uh, that's a unique thing that the people of your son's exact age went through, and that we won't be. You know, that's the difference between sympathy and empathy. Empathy is when you should have compassion for someone because you know what they're going through, the death of a loved one. We should have empathy for someone. Sympathy is when you uh, have a place in your heart for something someone is going through that you can't relate to whatsoever because right. you've never had it happen to you. And that's what went on with your wonderful son. And I have his high school graduation picture on my refrigerator. I have my wall of fame on my roof. I love to, it's, it's one of those things, you know, you get cards, you get cool Christmas cards and you guys are always, your family always has the best cards. And I always put them up for a while. The Christmas ones usually go on the wall in the dining room. So they're there for, I, I, you always feel guilty taking them down, but for months, what? Yeah, one, one last thing on this topic. So when you graduate high school and you send out cards, yeah, normally for kids, they send them out. They don't send them out. The mom sends the mom. Them. Yeah, right. Mom does this. And it's not about getting money, but, you know, parents and grandparents send a check. Right. You should see, you know, the most important thing in our life is for my son to finish his thank you cards. And it's like, kill, it's the most difficult thing you could ever imagine. <laughs> Sit down. How all kids are different. My oldest right. knock them out in 20 minutes. My other son, two months. <laughs> you do them, do them, uh, thank you cards oh my God, that, that is classic first son second son that's it, it funny is. because well, in I'm my the, in my in my family that was this my brother was the then that's the freudian first the first son sometimes is more responsible because his first two friends are adults the second son a little more social and less responsible because his first friend is another little person so that's sometimes that's that's not always a cookie cutter way that it goes psychologically, but it sounds like it did in your house. It certainly did in mine. I'm fascinated about rude behavior on airplanes. Okay, here we go. Sports radio over the last month, there's been fights at games. The yeah. Phoenix Sun fan who says Suns and four, he beat the crap out of this Denver fan because they got into it and it goes right on the internet and it's viral. Everybody's seen that video. But every night when I sit back and I watch the ABC World News Tonight with David Muir, who tries yes. to scare everybody in the first 10 minutes. A very scary <laughs> newscast. He's so concerned about everybody. There's an earthquake. There's a tornado. Yeah. There's something in Iran. Very nervous and very scared. And all the correspondents are very serious on this. And, you know, I watched this. And over the last month, there's just been women punching flight attendants. Yes. And men getting pulled to the ground and handcuffed. And the pilot saying, Get to the front of the plane and stop this guy. What the fuck is going on with people's social skills on airplanes coming off COVID-19 and flying for the first time, Tom? And not only that, last week, and there was two Delta stories that were identical. And the second one, it was a guy who was off duty. It was a guy who worked for the airlines, which has got to be the biggest mortal sin that there could ever be. Because it's really difficult there. Flight attendants aren't there to serve you Coca-Cola and give you a cookie. 
they're there to try to save your life in case anything goes down. People get that mixed up. And so they have to deal with a lot of crap. So the guy on Delta that worked for Delta and had to deal with that crap all the time, the last place you'd think he'd ever cause trouble, especially for his colleagues to deal with that all the time would be at work. He was off that day, but he's causing trouble at work. He's, you know, he's the guy that that's a bartender that goes into the bar on his day off and gets in a fight in the bar. It was uh, that one confused me more than all the rest. Is it, I'm guessing it's the same thing. You know, some people really felt bottled up. So now it's the roaring twenties. Everybody wants to get out. They want to go to the ball game. They want to go visit grandma or their parents, but they're still bottled up. People are, you, you and I always talked about it a little too uptight when they fly anyway, but now it's uptight squared, I guess, because they've been bottled up at home. How about not serving alcohol? Does that have anything to do with it? You get some guy on a plane from Peoria, Illinois, or from San Antonio, Texas, and you say, again, I love this stuff for no reason. I hate rules that shouldn't exist. Right. Oh, all of a sudden, we had a pandemic. There's no alcohol. Well, why is there no alcohol? I want a beer. I'm on a plane. I, I paid you $374 for a round-trip ticket. I want to buy a beer. Right. It settles me in my seat. It settles me. And you, you know, and oh, no, there's no alcohol on the flight. Why? Oh, we don't know. We don't know. There was a hundred year <laughs> pandemic. So I guess we're not allowed to touch the can or the cup, whatever rule. And that brings a little bit of tension here. But you made a great point about these flight attendants. Leave them alone. Oh, God. Like I always say when, when JT goes to a restaurant, I don't get a menu. People are fascinated by this. Tonight's my son's 18th birthday. We're going to Mastriani's across the street. It's one of the best Italian restaurants in Summerlin. The waiter comes to me and he goes to hand me a menu. And I go, no, no, no. My wife rolls her eyes. I don't need a menu. Why? It's an Italian restaurant. There's nothing on that menu that I don't know. And I haven't had my whole life. Now, if you tell me what the specials are and you say that there's a scallop or a sea bass, or there's this different type of lasagna, I will listen, but I won't ask you how that lasagna is served. I won't make you work. And it's the same thing with the flight attendant. They don't need to be asked questions. You're 35,000 feet in the air in a tube. It's a miracle. Yes, thank you. <laughs> with gasoline underneath it. And you're sitting there and you're asking the flight attendant, how much time till we get there? Oh, what do you have? Just leave them alone and don't throw punches at them and don't get all aggro and angry. I think it's a really big topic. And I love that you remind people of the miracle. A flight from hell is one that crashes into a mountain. Other than that, there's no such thing as a flight from hell. It's an absolute miracle that you flew from Los Angeles, California to Elmira, New York, 3,000 miles, which in the old days would have taken 3,000 days on a horse. <laughs> and now, and now it took you six hours. You got to celebrate that. It's okay if it was late or if it was delayed and people don't realize the gift, you know, people don't realize the gifts. Now, one quick note there, uh, never get the specials. You're right. Anyway, the specials are usually stuff that's left over and they've turned Wait, it into. Yeah. 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 yeah the, little, the sea bass is because the sea bass was so fresh yesterday, but not enough people ordered it. We got to get rid of this sea bass specials is shit. They got to get rid of. So they turned the trout into soup <laughs> because so, um, the only place I, well, real quick, the only yeah. place that I'd ask for a menu is if I went to a French restaurant or something and I didn't know anything about the cuisine. Yeah, I get if it. I went to a, you know, if I went to a Indian restaurant and I might want to look at it. Right. I don't understand. <clears throat> when you go, I want to make that point again. When you go to a diner for breakfast, don't ever look at a menu. 
Just order what you've ordered whenever you've ordered at a diner. That's such so a great point. An Italian oh restaurant, don't ever ask for a menu. Or a steak or restaurant. Or I want a filet. Baked potato. <laughs> but there's a lot of sides. There's a lot of sides at a steakhouse. Yeah. So you can get the Brussels like, sprouts. Exactly. Yeah. The, we're the, we're the, I don't know where Everybody Brussels sprouts. Brussels did they just invent Brussels sprouts a few weeks ago? Where did Brussels where did that the come lobster from? Mac. Get, oh, my God. Lobster mac and roni and cheese is much better than Brussels sprouts. You know, when you take a look at what's happening on the plains or in the parks or a racial issue in the park where somebody calls, you know, the police on a black family who's having a picnic at the park because they're upset that a black family's have a picking a picnic at the park people get this perception oh the, the race uh, relations are out of control in america but what happens is i think the internet skews our perception that maybe the skies are out of control or race is out of control or people are fighting at the beaches more than ever or at the, at the ball games or as chris rock pointed out we've just got cameras now we're just seeing things that always existed. And I always think life is getting better. We're getting along better in this country than we ever have between races and ethnicities and orientations, et cetera. And, and even, even people are kind of getting loosey, uh, getting loosening up on whatever pronouns someone wants to be called. That would have been so outrageous. You know, when we were growing up, a lot, so much of this would be outrageous. And now they're constitutional amendments and laws and protected rights, which is great. But we have cameras now that yeah. show little incidents out of context to our entire wonderful so-called culture that sometimes give us the perception that things are crazier than they are. I'm turning the machine off. I'm getting in the pool and I'm going to have a bucket of Modelo's. Oh, nice, nice. Wait a second, some, some day drinking. Good for you. See you later. Oh, by the way, I'm going to, a, I didn't tell you about this because I think the link will run out here. Last week I saw the fight. The fights are now at the Hard Rock at the Virgin. Uh -huh. You got to get out here. You have to get out here with Renee. I'll get you all set up at Virgin. Okay. Hard Rock. So they're putting, Bob, Bob Aram's putting the fights now inside the old joint, the concert theater. It's called the theater now. So last week we saw Shakur Stevenson, maybe the worst fight of my life. Uh -huh. I mean, pillow fight. This top five pound for pound fighter, un undefeated, jab, jab, touching gloves, jab, jab, touching gloves, Floyd fight, 112 nothing. I'm sitting there going, I cannot believe this. Tomorrow night, I'm taking Johnny to see the monster. You know, the J Japanese fighter? Right. Uh -huh. I, I, they, they're, they're running a half hour special on ESPN now. Find it. It's called The Monster. Okay. This, this yeah, I, I saw you tweet about him. I thought, okay, I got to find out more. Okay. The kid is this ja little ja Japanese cartoon character, just has destroyed everybody in two rounds. Yeah, I only found out about him through you and your tweets. It's incredible to see this guy. I mean, one of the most anticipated fights. So there's a tr three fights. Shakur was last Saturday, the monster in a way is fighting. And the next weekend, it's Lomachenko. So Ooh, Nomaschenko. So we got all that going. Son of a bitch. So make sure you go on your DVR and DVR this fight Saturday night, seven. Okay. Just hit that and try to try to see. I'm very, I, I haven't been this excited to see a fighter. In I love when that happens. And you, do you think, you know, I also think that all these celebrities fighting each other and different things going on, you know, people whine about it, but it brings attention to fighting. I couldn't disagree with you more, but Teddy oh. Atlas told, I had Teddy Atlas on last uh -huh. week. He convinced me. He says, JT, this Logan Paul takes it seriously. He takes the sport seriously. He's got millions of followers, blah, blah, blah. And he sold me on it. It, it brings new people to 
fighting yeah i i think anything that brings more people to something that we love so much because one thing it'll dovetail into real fighting and people following real boxers or real mma guys or whatever yeah i think it's always good when people are talking about the fight game as you know people love fights when we go to championship fights if there's a fight closer like right behind you people will turn around and watch the fight in the stands before they'll watch the one in the ring people love fighting absolutely i sent you also an interview i did yesterday with the voice of the yankees michael k oh my god it was one of the better interviews i've done you know you know did you ask him about his uncle i did not danny aiello the great actor i only had his father's brother or his mother's brother interesting i should have uh, i see and i saw that you're gonna have him on i should have texted you and reminded you but that's i mean i always think sometimes it's like even with fernando tatis jr or joe yeah. buck or whatever i think it is uh it's really cool to interview someone and not talk about their father or their uncle because they are an individual themselves people yeah, do that a really good executed You'll be the judge, but it was a really good executed 12, 13 minutes. Okay, well, you say it's a good interview. I will be the judge. Let's play it. I'm thrilled to talk to Michael Kay, voice of the Yankees, and the new book is Center Stage, my most fascinating interviews from A-Rod to Jay-Z. Michael, good to talk to you, and congratulations on the book. Thank you, JT. Good to talk to you. You know, it's a grind. Your radio show, Voice of the Yankees, the new book out, and you got to kind of fit it all in to your schedule. What's this type of year, this this month like for you with the Yankees? It's been interesting. Uh, you know, it's it's a little less grinding than it usually is because we're still not uh, the the broadcast is not traveling, and I you know not one um, regional sports network is traveling to this point. So I don't know if if that's in the future. That's usually the hardest part of the job. So. You know, just take the drive to the stadium every day, either do a game that's right in front of you or do a game that's on the monitor. And uh, the toughest part has been, you know, the Yankees up until about two weeks ago didn't hit, and those are not fun games to call, but uh, they seem like they're starting to come around of late. Uh, Before we get to the book, what have you learned and got comfortable with the monitor and the fact that you love being out on the road because you see the fans and you interact, and I know you got to stay in your lane. That's not your decision, but I'm sure you miss the travel even though you have a family at home. You know what? There's a there's a lot of there's a lot of things that go into like how I feel about this, and uh, I, I'm pragmatic, JT. I really am, and I understand that all of these regional sports networks lost a truckload of money last year. I mean, it's not like Amazon and Walmart that did well in the pandemic. They lost money. They only had 60 games when they thought they were going to have 150 plus. So uh, I understand it, and I understand that not traveling us is actually saving some money, getting some of the money back that they lost last year. So, uh, again, I'm not deaf to the fact that this is a business and this is what they have to do. Now, is a broadcast better when it's right in front of you? Absolutely. But can it be done off a monitor without uh, being a terrible broadcast? Yes, I believe that the people that notice that we're not there are people in the business. The average fan enjoys the broadcast. I call the no-hitter that took place in Arlington, Texas, that Corey Kluber threw, and I thought that I, I had a pretty decent game behind the mic. Uh, as for the traveling, i got to tell you, JT, I'm 60 years old, and I have a 6-year-old and an 8-year-old. So <laughs> I've seen all these cities since I was 20 years old. So uh, if I have to step away for like one, one year where I'm not going to Boston and I'm not going to L.A., I can deal with it for one year. Michael K. joins us. I get it. Let's get to center stage. The concept of the show getting it on the air. Take me back to the early years. Who had the vision with you, and how difficult was it to get it cleared and get it on TV? 
It was not my vision. Uh, I'll be totally forthright. The guy who started the Yes Network was hired by George Steinbrenner's John J. Filippelli, and he still runs it 20 years later. And so obviously he had to put the Yankees broadcast together. That was the main thing. And then what they call shoulder programming, the, the, the other shows that are going to be on Yes when the Yankees aren't on. And so he was in a diner one day, and he was just scribbling on one of those little napkins they give you under your soda. And he wrote down, Inside the Actor Studio for Sports. And uh, that was the James Lipton show where they sat down with actors and they spoke to him like for two, three hours. Yeah. Um, and he wanted to do that on the Yes Network. And I was not the first choice to host uh, because he felt that I had enough on my plate being the, the first play-by-play guy. I'd never been a lead guy. I'd always been, you know, John Sterling's second guy in the booth. So he didn't want to put this on me. And the first guy they wanted to hire was Jack Ford. Uh, and the other person they wanted to hire was Leslie Visser. Uh, both of them couldn't get out of the deals that they were in. So then he started to think, you know what, Kay's not a bad interviewer on MSG. Let, let's give him a shot, and maybe he can handle both things on his plate. And that's how it started. And 20 years and about 240 shows later, it's still on. Fantastic. Center stage, Michael Kay's new book. Interesting with your prep. I know we're both radio hosts and how much you have to prep, especially in the number one media market for radio. When you look at this show, what's the difference between John Bon Jovi, Paul Simon, and the prep that you already know for Lawrence Taylor or Joe Montana, the difference between sports and the arts, is there anything different in your preparation? I think there's a difference, JT. It's a great question. And, and if, you know, with with us, like sports, it's, it's part of our being. I mean, we grew up with it. Like John Sterling has a line, I've been preparing for this my whole life. So when you talk to somebody in sports, you know everything about them. But still, every single guest that's booked on center stage, the people that work behind the scenes send me – six to 800 pages of, of research. So I, I read everything I can about them. Then we put together a script, which I obviously will go off of according to the answers that the people give. And somebody once gave me advice. I don't know if I totally agree with it. Never do an interview unless you know the answer to every single question that you ask. I don't know if that's right, but I do like to know everything about them because I think people gain trust in you if they feel like you know what you're talking about. And if you're completely blind to something uh, that's important in their life, they're going to shut down and they're not going to really open up for you later on. Michael Kay joins us. So you getting the guests comfortable and when the live audience is there, we talked about your prep. How important is it before the interview begins to have that one-on-one with the guest or do you like to come in even if you don't know someone well and start it off right there when you get in the chair? I once read that Letterman would never, ever go into a green room. He yes. never wanted to see the guests before. I, I'm, not, I'm not like that. But I will go in because I don't want them to see me for the first time when they walk out on stage. That's kind of jarring to see my freakish head. So I'll just walk in and I'll shake their hand, say hello, pleasantries. But I will not do any part of the show in the dressing room. I try to keep that for the stage. But I do feel there should be some kind of familiarity uh, to, between two human beings before cameras get rolling. So that that's the extent of what I do. And sometimes when I walk in there, you know, some of these, you know, celebrities are Yankee fans, so they'll ask about the team. And I'm fine talking about the team or whatever and behind-the-scenes stuff, but nothing that we're going to talk about on the stage do I talk about in the dressing room. You know, I've watched the show for years, Living Out West and having Yes, and I've always enjoyed the fact that you're very comfortable with these guests. I'm assuming that there's – maybe give me an example of a couple of interviews that you just thought you nailed. You knew right when the camera went off you killed it, and maybe an interview or two that, you know, was a little bit a little bit tough in the beginning, maybe getting someone to open up. Well, I, I, I thought the, the one that probably resonates the most with people that watched – 
and the, the definitely people that were in the studio that day was the Mike Tyson one. Yeah. I mean, that was unbelievable, JT, in that, you know, he was on stage for an hour, and at times he sobbed uncontrollably. Other times he was laughing uproariously. He got angry. He got sad. At times I thought he was going to hit me. Uh, everybody that was in that studio audience said they're sitting on the edge of their seat. And now I found this out like a week and a half ago, so it's not even in the book, that that show ran on Yes. Spike Lee was watching and called up Mike Tyson and said, that's a Broadway show. That's a one-man Broadway show, what you just did on that stage. And that's what Tyson on Broadway started from, which I'm really flattered about, but also upset that I didn't get a piece. But that, that, was, a, that was one that even when you walked out of the studio, you go, wow, that was intense. He really bared a soul, and you feel good about that. You know, there, uh, Of the 240 we've done, I, I think there's just one real bad one, and, and that's, that's uh, Dennis Quaid. You know, he he didn't think the show was going to be an hour, although I'm sure his publicist told him. Uh, the first two segments of the show, he gave yes and no answers. Uh, when we went to break after the second segment, I leaned over and I said softly, I said, listen, the show's an hour. Whether you give yes or no answers, it's not going to speed it up. i got thousands of questions. You're the one who's going to look bad here. And he was kind of startled that somebody would talk to him like that. And he was a little bit better after that, but of the 240... That was the clinker, and I feel badly about it because maybe I didn't do my part either because, you know, I see him on Kimmel and I see him on Fallon, and he's a great guest. He's funny, but that day on that stage in that seat, he was dreadful. Yeah, getting back to Tyson, I saw when he launched the show in Vegas where I live, and you're right about that. I saw the interview you did with him, and then for Spike to say that, that is a high honor. Michael Kay joins us center stage. My most fascinating interviews from A-Rod to Jay-Z. Uh, before we wrap it up with the book, as a sports talk host on radio, how'd you deal with the last couple of weeks with the sticky substance? I talked to Pete Rose. We've had all these baseball insiders on, and everyone has a different opinion. And then you hear what Garrett Cole has to say and other pitches around the league and the process of maybe being injured if they don't feel like they have the grip. And I'm even hearing words like cold turkey. It's really a, a really big mind issue for these pitchers. How are you handling it? It's weird, you know. You, I, I agree. Everybody has a different take. Even people within the union, uh, they seem like split, which I, I think the, the owners are probably overjoyed about. But, you know, you got Pete Alonso who says he, he wants them to have whatever they want on the mound so they don't lose control of the baseball. And then you have Charlie Blackman uh, and uh, Josh Donaldson saying that they shouldn't have anything. Uh, I think it's got to be somewhere in the middle. Uh, you know, Al Leiter was on with us on the on the show, on the radio show, and he said, hey, They've been doing this for years. 95% of pitchers have put something on the ball to get a grip. It's impossible to grip without. So I find it hard to believe that they're just going to cut them down to nothing. I don't understand why they can't get together in a room and come up with an agreed-upon substance that you can get control of the baseball but not weaponize that control and turn it into spin rate. And I think what Garrett Cole did yesterday, JT, was he showed that you don't have to have this incredible spin rate to pitch well because his RPMs were down 200, 200 on his fastball, 200 RPMs. That's significant, and he was still brilliant against a really good hitting team, allowing two runs in eight innings. So I think you just have to pitch a little bit differently. And as for the injuries, I know Tyler Glass now thinks that he partially tore his UCL because he went cold turkey. That's going to be hard to prove. I mean, people do tear their UCL even when they're using this stuff. You know, I do the games on Yes with David Cohn, and he thinks that – the proliferation of Tommy John surgeries could be because 
you know, the ball is on your hand so much and the torque so much on your elbow that that could tear ligaments as well. I think this is a a new frontier. I just don't like the fact that baseball decided to become these big bad policemen in the middle of the year. That's an awful look, and it's it is tough on pitchers that might not be able to get a grip on the baseball. Finally, Michael, I like a quote that you recently had. You said, I quote, I work for two Tiffany brands. I can't really go low on ESPN. The Yankees, the team of my youth. I'm a diehard Yankee fan, as you know. I worked for Fox for 17 and a half years. You're with ESPN. That quote really resonated with me because in sports radio, we compete against people nationally and locally that seem like they can do whatever they want. They can get really low. They can try to be more entertaining. But you got to wake up every day knowing that you work for two Tiffany brands, and you always keep that in mind. I'm very impressed by that. Thank you. And, and right now, JT, I'm in a ratings war um, with the other station, and they hired Craig Carton. And I think Craig is a fabulously talented broadcaster, but you know he comes from morning, uh, morning radio, and he gets blue, and he'll say stuff, and he'll insult people, and he'll, he'll insult me from what I've heard. I'm, I'm on at the same time. And, you know, Michael Kay, the kid from the South Bronx, I could get as down and dirty as anybody in the world. But on that radio show, I, you're not just representing yourself. You're representing everybody that you work for. So, yeah, I could do it. And, you know, it might help me a little bit in the ratings. But I don't think the Yankees would want somebody being their play-by-play voice who's working blue on the radio. And, you know, Disney, you know, Disney had an opportunity to hire Craig Carton. And they just don't go that route. That's not what Disney believes. So... I know where my paychecks are signed, and it's not like I'm selling out. I just I have a respect for the people that I represent and the brands that I represent, and, and that gives me a certain line that I can't cross. They let me go up to it, but I can't yep. cross it. Well, Michael, finally, the highest compliment I can pay you is my 83-year-old dad in Massapequa is a diehard Yankee fan from DiMaggio, sat in the bleachers for Mantle, and everybody else who's played for the for the Yanks, and he always says to me, he goes, Michael K. someday is going to have a monument in Monument Park. That's from my dad in Massapequa who thinks the world of you. So we'll promote the book. We'll send everybody to Amazon and keep it going, and it's just great to catch up with you again. JT, thank you, and, and thank your dad. That's, that's really kind. You got it. Take care, Michael. All the best. Be well. He's in a ratings war with WFAN in New York with Craig Carton, the guy who went to jail. Right. Um, Craig Carton's documentary on HBO. I didn't see the documentary, but I know the story. I know you. I've heard. Go see the documentary. And Michael Kay's losing to Craig Carton. And I go, Michael, I saw this quote from you. You work for two Tiffany brands, the Yankees and ESPN. You can't get down in the dirt. You, You can't go down that road. And he's like, JT, I really appreciate you saying that. And he basically admitted he's in a ratings war, but he can't go blue. He can't get too blue. Right. I thought it was fucking great. I got how I teed him up for that to come. Right. Feel good. Cause he's getting his ass kicked. Right. I was in jail for fraud and right. Does potty talk radio every day and gets good ratings. Cause he's allowed to do potty talk. And yeah. Like, well, yeah, it's whether it's politics or sports talk or regular talk radio. The only thing really bringing people in is WWE style. Uh, you know, potty talk. Uh, OMG. Did, did, did you listen to the entire podcast? Thank you. The JT and Looney podcast is property of JT and Looney. The opinions expressed on the JT and Looney podcast aren't necessarily the opinions of JT and Looney. And I also need to mention that the JT and Looney podcast is powered by Bet Online. 
your online sportsbook experts. Thanks. Have a nice day. You bet. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.